0: Have you ever found yourself at the local police department in an interrogation room, being questioned about a crime you're pretty sure you didn't commit? Or am I the only one? Uh, if you've been around Calvary long enough, you know that I spent my adolescent years spicing up my testimony, and uh, and I remember—I uh, think it was freshman year of college—I was in. Uh, my apartment, and I got a phone call from my dad late at night. And he said, Thomas, the police were just here looking for you. And I thought, I, I haven't done anything in a while. I don't know why they would be here. Uh, okay, what do they want? Well, here's the detective's name. He'd like you to give him a call tonight. I said, okay. So I called the detective that showed up at my folks' house. And he said, would you be willing to come down to the department and answer a few questions tonight? And I thought, yeah, why not, you know? So went down to the Boulder PD's police department. And they welcomed me in there and put me in one of those small rooms, uh, probably two-way glass. I pictured like iced tea walking in any moment, you know, just to ask some questions. Uh, but no, they, they came in and they said, are you Thomas Milvern? Yes. Uh, and They said, how long have you been stealing car stereos for? <laughs> and I thought, of all the things I've done, I haven't done that. You know, that wasn't one of my things. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I have never stolen any car stereos. And they said, well, we have your fingerprints in this vehicle. And I thought, well, I, I have been in some vehicles, but I don't know what you're talking about. he said, well, do you know a gentleman named Dave Ballmer? And I said, yeah, Dave, he's a mentor of mine when I was in high school. He's from the church that I go to. And they said, oh, so you've known Dave? I said, absolutely. Oh, that would explain why your fingerprints are in the car. Yeah. I said, but I haven't been with Dave for several years. How old is this case? Oh, about five years old. I thought, oh my goodness, by the time you find his stolen stereo, we're not even going to use CDs anymore. Like, what is going on? But here's the point. When I went down to the department, I didn't have a great sense of confidence. Like, they definitely don't have anything against me. As though I'm going to walk in and surely there's not going to be any trouble. I thought, 50-50, I'm going home tonight. How confident do you feel when your boss calls you into her office at the end of the year just to have a little chat? You're like, oh man, what did I do? How confident do you feel if you're a kid and your parents wanna have a sit down meeting with you or ask you out for dinner and we just wanna talk about a few things? Are you thinking, Oh, what do they know? What did they read? What did my friends tell them? There's a sense of fear, timidity, a bit of uncertainty when we walk into these areas of authority. The passage we're in today in Hebrews gives us this incredible hope. After 10 chapters now of rather dense theology of the works of Jesus Christ, of the accomplishments of Christ, the victories of Christ, the majesty of Christ, he's going to say, therefore, you have great confidence to enter the most holy place. The place that a priest would be able to go one time of year and they're afraid, they're going in with fear. But you Christian who are in Christ with total confidence, no timidity, no shrinking back, no fear, get to step into the full awesome holy presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. And I want you to see our actions our response of Christ's great work. So grab your Bibles. We're continuing in the series Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week in verse 19. Verse 19 reads, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's who Jesus is. 10 chapters of how Christ's sacrificial work has covered us. 10 chapters of Christ's ongoing, enduring, internal priesthood. He sits on a throne called grace, we're told, and he dispenses mercy and grace to you in your time of need. He's an anchor for your soul. He's the one that has given you a new heart and written his laws on your mind and your heart. And therefore, therefore, Christian, with confidence, come in and draw near to the presence of God. There are three things that we do out of response of what Christ has done for us. Verse 22, and I put all of these on one slide. So look at them, we'll read them, read through them, and then we'll come back and look at them. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that's the coming of Christ, drawing near. So three things, because of the work of Christ, because of the salvation he has provided, because of who we are in Christ, number one, Let us draw near with great confidence. Let us draw near through faith. The way someone draws near to God is through faith. Apart from faith, the writer of Hebrews will tell us, it's impossible to please him. We must believe in him and have faith in him. We must trust in his work. And so we draw near through faith. And what is our faith given us? Well, it's a cleaned conscience. It's a washed body. Two descriptions of how Christ has made us pure from the inside out. The work of Christ is not superficial, merely being the outside, the veneer of your life. Remember, he gives you a new heart. The Spirit's work is to write his laws on your heart and your mind, he says. And so because of what Christ's work internally and externally on you, because you're right with him, we have the confidence through faith, not of our own works or our own abilities, but through faith in Christ to draw near. What keeps people from drawing near to God? How about this? As you journey with the Lord, what keeps you from drawing near to the Lord at times? Is it not our own sin? Say, he's not gonna forgive me again. He must be so tired of me. Perhaps you're afraid of him. What's he going to say to me? Jesus Christ gives us the full assurance to confidently draw near. Because when we draw near, he doesn't guilt us and shame us for sins that he's forgiven of us in Jesus Christ. That we come to him having been cleansed from the inside out. We don't have to be afraid of what he's gonna say to us for he sits there and he's for us. He's an intercessory for us. He loves us. He longs to be with us. The work of Christ is so that we would be reconciled with him. And so we have great confidence for the first one through faith to draw near to God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you get to be in the very presence, the nearness of God. It's wonderful. The second one is this, that we would hold fast to our hope. That we're holding fast to hope. That Paul told us, this is, this is the gospel message, the hope that you believed in. That Jesus is the Christ, the promised one of God. And that he came in the flesh, dealing with a human problem, our problem of sin and death. And he died, was buried, and three days later, rose to new life and is at the right hand of God the Father. And after he rose, he showed himself to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. This is what our hope is in. This is the confidence of our hope, is the work of Jesus Christ, that there truly is resurrection from the dead. If you believe in Jesus Christ, though you die, your body dies, yet will you truly, really, eternally live Now, when we think of hope, we think of wishy-washy feelings. It's like ethereal. It's like a vapor. Like, how do you hope it? I hope it happens. I wish it would happen. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is the certainty to have confidence that what has been promised is yours. Hope is based on concrete certainties. And so look at this little verse right here. Let us hold fast To the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The reason we have certain concrete hope is that it's established in his faithfulness to us. If it was based on our faithfulness, like he's gonna get some things going for us in faith, but we have to finish it as though we have to perfect it, well then yeah, it's I hope it happens. Not sure if it's gonna happen, but our hope is rooted in his faithfulness that certain concrete hope that he who has promised to save us will be faithful to do it. This has been a repeating theme through the book of Hebrews. I wrote down, here are four of them. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, talking about Christ's sonship. He's the, the son of God's house. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope Chapter four, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews six, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Then again, here in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast with great confidence, our hope, for it's established in his faithfulness. You see that? Jesus is the son of the household of God and you are his children and he won't let his children go, hold fast. Jesus has sworn that God is impossible to lie and he has come through the heavens and drawn near to us and then gone back to heaven. So therefore, hold fast the confidence. Christ has accomplished this work on our behalf. Therefore, hold fast to this great confidence. Don't shrink back. When you think of holding fast, you think of something that is material, that's concrete and secure. If you're walking on ice and you're looking for something to hold on to, do you not come to the side of the rink maybe? Or they give you one of those like walkers on the ice and you got your skates on, but you're holding fast like a death grip. You know when you're traveling abroad, What's the thing you hold fast to? Your passport. Traveling with many students over the year internationally, I can't believe how casual they are with their passports. I have found students' passports I'm traveling with laying on the airport floors thinking, I wonder who this is. Oh, I better go find them. And eventually I just made a new rule. I said, you know what? I'm gonna hold on to all of your passports for you. And so we'll go through security, I'll hand you out your passport, we'll get through security, you give me back your passport, and then when we get to security again, I'll give it to you, and then you give it back to me. Why? Because it's so valuable. This is what Christ is to us. He is the eternal passport, so to speak, into the presence of God. And so we cling to it. We hold fast to it. We do not shrink back from it. We are not casual with it. We don't misplace it. It is ours and we grasp it. All right, last one. So we draw near, we hold fast, and then we stir up. See what he says here? Let us, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This faith, hope, and love the trinity of the Christian faith, faith, hope, and love. We draw near in faith, we hold fast to our hope, and we stir up towards love. What does stir up mean? Get people excited, emotionally. Have some action behind it. This isn't love that's just like internal emotion, like, oh, that's so sweet, I love them. No, love that's put into action, and the action of our love is called good works. It's just this big, huge banner over the good things Christians do in reconciliation, the way we serve in charity, generosity. It's a big banner over all the things that Christians do that are motivated by love. Here at Calvary, what's our mission statement? Building Christ-centered communities of people who are fully devoted to what? Fully devoted to love. We're trying to stir you up to love God that's your vertical, and others, horizontal. We want to be people of love. Now, when I think of Christians getting stirred up today, do, I, do we see a bunch of Christians getting stirred up towards love? I don't know. And people love to get stirred up. I think politicians are loving to stir people up. But what do they stir people up for? fear animosity, blame, worry, anxiety. I mean, you just click on a headline news and it's like, here's the article and here's, to, here's, here's who you should blame and here's who you should be afraid of. And then get y'all stirred up. But the thing that Christians should be stirred up for is what? What's our aim of being gathering together, being stirred up today is what? To love, to love, love. That's what we're after is get really excited, passionate, stirred up, not to be afraid, not to be worried in the world today, not to be anxious in the world today, but to be the agent of love in the world today. How cool would it be if even just our local community here said, oh, I know a bunch of Christians that go to Calvary. They're always stirred up for love and good works. That's why we do things like the heart of Advent is to present our partners a need here locally and globally to say, look at what they need, stir you up for missions, for the world, for what's going on, so that God gets your heart and stirs you up that in love, there's good works and actions there. It's actually why we often get together is to stir up our faith. And that's what he concludes with here is verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day Christ's return, drawing near. See that? Don't get in the habit of being an isolated Christian. Don't get in the habit of not gathering around other believers because this is not an individual activity. This isn't a marathon which you just run. This is far more like like a Peloton in which we have a long race to run, but we do it together we pace together. For those who are weary, we let them come in beside us and and draft off us, so to speak. And so do not get into the habit of just neglecting to gather with your life group, with your men's group, women's group, here with the community of believers on Sunday morning. And there are so many things that want to crowd out this space in your life to isolate you. But I think of it like this. My brothers and I, we love to go camping. My younger brother, Stephen, has this ridiculous game that he likes to play. No one else likes to play it. It's called toss the coal. And so he grabs a coal from the hot fire and you don't even get put gloves on. This is terrible. So he tosses it to you and then you have to quickly toss it back to him. Otherwise you burn your hand and the first person to drop, then they're out of the game and it goes down to two people, okay? Great game, who wants to play? (laughs) Here's the secret though. The first few, they're really hot. But how quickly does that coal turn into a warm ember in the evening in the mountains? Pretty quick. Because you're removing it from the fire and it's really hot right away. But as it's tossed back and forth through the cool air, it cools off rather quickly. And a hot coal quickly becomes a warm ember and then becomes a cold piece of burnt wood. That's the picture of Christians as they depart and neglect gathering around the believers. At first, they look really hot for the Lord. Like, we're gonna go do some things, but no one can do this with me. Or I'm not gonna gather with other Christians. I don't need any other Christians. I'm just gonna hang out here by myself at Starbucks Church in a hot coal turns into a warm ember. And unless it's brought back into the fire, just becomes a dead piece of burnt wood. That's what it looks like. It's so important that we gather together to stir one another up in faith for love and good works, that your hope would be kindled, that as you lose sight of Christ because of what's happening in your life, I can share with you what God's doing in mine what I'm seeing God do in others, to encourage you to continue to persevere and follow him. There's also other benefits of gathering together. There's been these big research projects lately of what are the benefits of gathering together for religious services. One of the articles was written in Christianity Today. And this is an article in Christianity Today written about recent studies that have been done by clinicians and social scientists even those with secular institutions like Harvard. And they said that this, our findings aren't unique. Other people are noticing this, especially during the pandemic. A number of large, well-designed research studies have found that religious service attendance is associated with greater longevity, less depression, less suicide, less smoking, less substance abuse, better cancer and cardiovascular disease survival, Less divorce, greater social support, greater meaning in life, greater life satisfaction, more volunteering, and greater civic engagement. Just attending a religious service. It's not even if you're a real believer. Just attending a religious service. These are peripheral benefits of being together. Most recent studies of healthcare professionals indicates that religious service attenders had far fewer deaths of despair, deaths by suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol, than people who never attended services, reducing those deaths by 68% for women and 33% for men. That's incredible. That's so incredible that the peripheral benefits are not only spiritual, but have physical implications for us as we gather at religious services. The writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect. Don't neglect calendar, other things that keep you from getting together with the body of believers. Remember all of these three things? Starts with two words, let us. It doesn't say let you, it says let us. That's the, the corporate call. Let us draw near to God through faith. Let us hold fast to the hope. Let us stir one another up for love, and good works. You see the let us in this? Let us. Who are the us's in your life? Have you intentionally surrounded yourself with other believers? I'll tell you, it's so wonderful to be here on Sunday morning in the large corporate worship center. But this doesn't substitute for the need of being known in smaller communities. As Calvary continues to get bigger, we just, I ask, we have to get smaller and smaller and smaller too. And so are you known in a smaller community here at Calvary that knows how your marriage is doing, that knows how your faith is doing, that knows how your kids are doing, that knows how you're doing financially, knows about your health issues, is praying for you. Do not neglect getting together with the believers of Christ so that we would draw near, hold fast, and stir up. I think the benefits are so good to the church is that people can come and enjoy the Christian services, learn a lot about Jesus, but never surrender their life to Christ. There are five warning passages in Hebrews. We've looked at three of them so far. On the heels of this text is probably one of the most severe. And the writer of Hebrews, remember he's writing to a Jewish Christian audience that is in danger of drifting away, falling away, really going back to the sacrificial system of Judaism and neglecting Christ. Now, I don't know if there's anyone in this room who's in danger of drifting into the sacrificial system of Judaism, but the direction is the same, the direction being away from Christ, to drift back to the life you had before you heard of Christ, before you attended a church service, There's a danger in that for people to look like a Christian, smell like a Christian, act like a Christian, receive the benefits of being around a community like this, a healthy community, not perfect by any means, but a healthy community. But having never said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I have repented and turned from my sins to Christ, and I have surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ. And so, the author is writing to those who have yet to do that or are in danger of not embracing Christ and going back to their previous life. And these are the words he says. We're gonna end with this. We'll, we'll try to be brief. Chapter 10, verse 26. Do you know why I tell you these things? Do you know why I tell you these things? Do you know why we don't skip this verse? It's because I love you. I love you. And you might just be the very person in this room who needs to hear this. And so 1026, out of love, let me just tell you what's written. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This isn't like a casual sin after faith. It sounds like, oh, I slipped up or, or the final act of my life was sinful. And so that negates everything before it. That's not what it's saying. It's this deliberate choosing to not surrender your life to Christ. It becomes clearer here in a second. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he draws back, as he's been doing, to the Exodus story. And here he draws back to a time when people said, we're going to set aside Moses and we're going to go find ourselves other gods. That's the deliberate sinning, is a full rejection of, you know what, I'm not doing the God who brought us out of Egypt. Let's go find other gods. I've heard of him. I've seen him, but I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to go follow other gods. And so if we set aside Christ, there's no plan of salvation. There's no forgiveness of sins. Not because you can't be forgiven. It's because that you never seek forgiveness. Do you see that? If you desire to be forgiven, the Lord is always here in kindness and grace, ready to receive you. It's not on his end. It's on ours. If we deliberately set aside Christ like they set aside the laws of Moses, they died without mercy by the testimony of three or four witnesses. So three or four witnesses would testify these people have left the people of God and they were put to death in Moses's day. It's wild. And then he elevates it here. How much worse punishment Do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Who have turned away from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If they put them to death in Moses' day, can you imagine the consequence for those who have heard about Christ, know about his grace, know about forgiveness, and turn their backs on him? That's what's, being, that's what's being elevated here. This is the warning. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Isn't it interesting, the juxtaposition? That those who are in Christ who have been cleansed from the inside out has great confidence to draw near to the presence of God. And those who reject God, it's a, it said, it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you heard of these things, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You've already suffered because you were part of the community. Don't leave it now. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What you need is endurance. That saving faith is persevering faith. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, both Calvin and Joseph Arminius believe that saving faith, true, genuine saving faith, is persevering faith. It's persevering. It's through today. Today we choose Christ. And then tomorrow will be today. And we choose Christ and we persevere. And we've already suffered so much, he says. Why turn back now for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But verse 39 is so good. But we are not of those not of those, that's the third person. Not of those people who abandon their faith, who turn their backs on what they've heard of Christ, who do not surrender their life, but we're not of those. They went out from us for they were not of us. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. How do you have faith to endure long, hard seasons? Chapter 11 next week is all about those who have lived similar lives as us and persevered in faith, who followed God's call on their life and did not shrink back. They did it imperfectly, but nonetheless, they continued to pursue Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he's so quotable. I was reading Spurge this week. He says, talking about perseverance. But even the snail through perseverance made it to the ark. <laughs> Isn't that great? But even the snail through perseverance made it to the ark. And I think the others just saying, hey, I get it. With the social pressures and and governmental pressures. he's like, I'm done with this thing. I'm going back to the way I was living when I didn't feel all of this weight. And he says, what are you doing? Not now. You were with us when we were loving people in prison. When we were out there and they were taking our property and we said, That's okay. I have a greater inheritance coming. You are in need of endurance, of perseverance. For you truly belong. To the household of God, he who began a good work in you is faithful to finish that work in you if you belong to him. And so if there's anyone in the room that has really enjoyed the benefits of being a Christian, maybe being raised in a Christian home, had parents that dedicated them at a young age, but has never surrendered their life to Christ, this is a stern warning to say, don't shrink back. Surrender your life to Christ, what you're in need of, is perseverance and endurance, which comes through three things that he already gave us, didn't he? Three things that we would draw near. Let us draw near through faith. Let us hold fast to the hope for he is faithful and let us stir one another up towards love and good works. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is true and honest with us that's willing to tell us just the awesome, wonderful, good news of what Christ has done in washing us from the inside out so that we can be in your presence now and for eternity. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is weary. I pray that you would strengthen their faith. I pray that their life group, men's group, women's group, I pray that the message today, the music that is sung would remind them that you are holding them together and it's based on your faithfulness, not theirs. And let us, Lord, be a community. Let us be a community that draws near, that holds fast and stirs up one another for love and good works. Amen.